This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of the Zoomer Week in Review, heard every Sunday at noon on Zoomer Radio. You're listening to the Zoomer Week in Review, brought to you by CARP, a new vision of aging. Support CARP with your membership today. Visit carp.ca. Good afternoon and welcome to the Zoomer Week in Review, all things Zoomer worldwide. I'm Libby Snymer. This year marks a century since the end of the First World War. To commemorate this somber anniversary, there's a powerful project called The World Remembers, dedicated to the millions of lives lost. The Canadian behind the project is here to tell us more. And tennis is at an all-time high in popularity in this country thanks to newcomers like Denis Shapovalov and Eugenie Bouchard. But it was Canada's Daniel Nestor who paved the way over two decades ago. The Zoomer is still playing, but this weekend marks his final pro event at the Davis Cup. But first, here are your Zoomer headlines from around the world. Japan is taking a revolutionary approach to Zoomers in the workplace. The government is encouraging companies to retain workers until the age of 70 by offering hiring incentives and pension reform. This comes in response to an aging and shrinking workforce. Tokyo will revise legislation that now requires companies to allow employees to work until 65. More baby boomers are turning to marijuana. A new U.S. study found for middle-aged adults, the percentage of cannabis users has doubled over a decade. But it's seniors who are increasingly passing the pipe a seven-fold increase in that same period. I'm almost 80. That rheumatoid arthritis very bad. That's why I'm taking the marijuana. Research is limited, but weed may help older people with pain, insomnia, and a lack of appetite. The study is published in the journal Drug and Alcohol Dependence. Olivia Newton-John is using marijuana for pain after being diagnosed with cancer for the third time in three decades. The four-time Grammy winner and star of Grease, who turned 70 later this month, says doctors found a tumor in her lower back last year. She's taking cannabis oil for pain made from marijuana her husband grows in California and says she feels good. She's hoping her native Australia will legalize medical marijuana. She was previously diagnosed with breast cancer twice in 1992 and again in 2013. Tai Chi helps prevent falls among seniors. Authors of a new study say seniors who routinely do the ancient Chinese stretching had a 60% lower risk of falling compared to two other groups doing stretching and agility exercises. The adults who practiced Tai Chi also had improved strength and cognitive function compared with the other activities. That study is in JAMA Internal Medicine. Sally Field has a new memoir where she reveals a dark past. The Emmy and Oscar winner writes about being sexually abused as a child by her stepfather in the book In Pieces, 
released next week. It's not a traditional showbiz autobiography, but it does delve into some of Field's famous roles and relationships with celebrity co-stars like Burt Reynolds, who died last week. She says this memoir would hurt him and is relieved he'll never read it. I'm Libby Snymer, and those are your Zoomer headlines from around the world. A century after the end of the First World War, a special project pays respect to the millions who died on an individual basis. The names of those who lost their lives in battle are being projected on large screens in cities across Canada and many other countries. It began this week and runs until Remembrance Day. Canadian actor and playwright R.H. Thompson created The World Remembers. It's a World War Centenary project. And I sort of got into it because I actually, I lost seven great uncles in that war. Three on my mother's side, four on my father's side. So I wrote a play about my father's great uncles called The Lost Boys. And I only say that because other people came to my dressing room. So I would play this play in whatever, we played it in Ottawa and Toronto and Winnipeg. And every night people would come. We come to the dressing room afterwards, knock, knock, knock. Hi, oh, yeah, interesting show. And then literally within uh, two minutes... They were all telling me stories about their family. And they were all war stories about their family. And that's when I understood that in your family and my family and everybody who's listening, there are stories back there that families keep in the attic. And this is the First World War. And those are the great uncles and the great grandfathers and the great greats. And those stories have been buried. And this project is a way to say, okay, it's time to bring them out. Everybody's story. Not just the heroes, you know, but everybody's story. It's actually been scientifically proven. Like they they always used to refer to the lost generation. There actually was a lost generation. Yep. And also a lot of people who never found partners or anything like that because all these young men were killed. Surplus women after the war. In the 1920s and 30s, they were called surplus women. Wow, I didn't know that. Yeah. And I went through my family at one point, and I sort of added, who are the older women that I knew when I was six years old? And there was like 17 of them. And then I went through the 17, and I went, oh, yeah, she was a widow, she was a widow. Oh, no, she never married, she never married, she never married, she never married, she never married. And I looked at that group at Generation, and I went, wow, like six of the 17 had not married, probably for that reason. What are you doing with this project? The idea is to personalize history. Because when history is like facts and treaties and dates and whatever, you know, I sort of back off and my eyes glaze and I go to sleep. And I think the history of this personal is powerful. If you can connect someone to history personally, that's when history becomes relevant. And their family story then has to be connected. So we are saying for five years now, we've shown the names of those killed in World War I 100 years afterwards. So this 2018 display will show the names of those killed in 1918. There's 1,003,167 of them. And so these names are individually shown one by one. They don't scroll, they don't crawl, they stand there. And then they crossfade. And the point is that you can search the names. So any family can go, oh yeah, my great-great-uncle... Bill Jones, he was killed in 1918. They go to the World Remembers website. They go search the names. Canadian Army, Bill Jones, hit. And there's probably like 42 Joneses come up, and they'll look down and say, oh, that's great-great-uncle Harold Jones. And then we'll say his name appears November the 2nd at 2.04. So at 2.04, the family says, okay, let's go watch. 
and we hear back from people that it means a huge amount to go to one of these displays and at, you know, 2 o'clock and 2.01 and then 2.04, their great-great-uncle's name appears for a minute. There's a display unit in the Rotunda of Toronto City Hall, right beside the mayor's elevator. That runs all day. The Toronto Public Library is showing it on their media screen at night. They run a nighttime version. And then we're in Trinity College, and then we're in Richmond Hill Public Library, and then we're in Hamilton Public Library. So there's a number of those libraries and schools in the Toronto area that people can go, and that's all on the World Remembers website. There are 82 locations across Canada, in the United States, and in Europe. And they all show these names simultaneously, because we're showing the Canadian names, but we're also showing the names from France from Germany, from Britain, from Australia, from Slovenia, from Italy, from Czech Republic, we show all those names as well. So people on both sides of the conflict. Because we are a nation of all people. So what do you say to the Czech Canadian? What do you say to the Sikh Canadian, Katie who lives in Brantford? You're not part of this? No. You show the Sikh names. What do you say to the Chinese Canadian, Katie who lives in Richmond Hill? Do you le- are you left out on November 11th? No. There's Chinese names here. So it's a way of saying to all the communities of Canada, you are part of this. This is a very Canadian idea. We also stream it online. What do you hope this will accomplish? We have a terrible habit of ritualizing remembrance. So we turn up November 11th, have a little service. People carry flags. We stand for a minute. We feel good. We go home. And I go, are you actually remembering the people who died? Or are you going through a little ritual to feel that you are? And I hate to say it, we're going through a little ritual. And no one actually remembers them. But who actually knows the people who died in World War I? There's nobody left who was around then. Their families. Their great-great-nephews. Their great-great-grandchildren. This war killed 68,000 Canadians. The least you can do... 100 years later, is to name them. Otherwise, I don't think we have the right to ask another young man or woman to go in uniform and go fight for us. We had an opening event in Ottawa. It was at the Canadian War Museum, and we invited the 16 nations here. So we invited the ambassador of France, the ambassador of Germany, the high commissioner of Britain, of Australia, whatever, and they all came. They all came. Even the Chinese attache came. So we had the diplomatic representation. They were interested enough in this Canadian project, which there's no other project out there that actually says, we're going to do everybody. We are going to do all people. And these countries start to respond to that. Go to the website and look up your family. You can just search through the names, right? You go to the World Remembers and you go to search the names. And then you start to explore and see what, because I think history is personal. Okay. R.H. Thompson, thanks so much. Thank you for hearing me out. (laughs) That was Canadian actor and playwright R.H. Thompson, who created The World Remembers. I'm Libby Snymer, and this is the Zoomer Week in Review. Coming up, we serve up an interview with Canadian tennis ace Daniel Nestor. You're listening to the Zoomer Week in Review, brought to you by CARP, a new vision of aging. Support CARP with your membership today. Visit carp.ca. He's the most successful tennis player this country has ever produced. Daniel Nestor, now a Zoomer at 46, still plays competitively, but this weekend marks his final pro match at the Davis Cup. 
Two years ago, Nestor became the first doubles player in the history of the Association of Tennis Professionals to win a thousand matches. Daniel took time out from practice to stop by the Zoomerplex to talk about his career and what comes next. I feel fortunate to have played as long as I have, and uh, unfortunately, uh, this is my last match coming up this weekend at Davis Cup. You were the first doubles player to reach a thousand wins. Yeah, it was a special moment, uh, especially because my family was there to share that with me. It was in Sydney, Australia, and uh, many great partners over the years, uh, you know, started playing from a pretty young age, and and uh, you know, I was always better at doubles, even though I. I grew up trying to be uh, a singles player. I was uh, always better at doubles, so my success, uh, you know, is definitely more uh, noticeable on the doubles court. To what do you credit your ability to play so long to have such a great long career? Uh, definitely fortunate, uh, you know, with injuries. I did get injured quite a bit when I was playing singles and had a couple surgeries. But since I just started playing doubles, it's been a lot easier on my body. Is it is a, an easier game on the body for sure. So the last 15 years, there's been few aches and pains, but uh, much less than in the 90s when uh, I was I was playing both. We're seeing players last longer. What's that about? I think generally uh, people just have a better idea of how to take care of themselves and nutrition and working out and the fitness aspect has really improved over the last 20 years. And it is surprising definitely considering how physical the game has gotten that uh, the average age of the top 100 players are, are the oldest in history. So that's definitely surprising people don't really understand that compared to, to most other sports. What do you think is contributing to, let's say, a flowering of tennis in Canada? I think uh, years back they started uh, focusing more on uh, hiring some international coaches and getting some different views on on things, and uh, they put together a very uh, good national training center in Montreal that has been very successful in uh, breeding a lot of these players. And this is the golden era of Canadian tennis. You know, we have so many great players, and you know, even this Davis Cup team that I'm a part of this weekend is the best we've ever assembled. So we're at a good place right now. Was it deliberate that your last professional match is going to be Davis Cup? Kind of. Uh, at, when I kind of started thinking about retiring at this time last year, it was during Davis Cup and, uh, you know, I, I didn't have a good season and, you know, this season was kind of dedicated to playing all the big tournaments one more time and kind of seeing where I'm at. And then uh, after we lost in Croatia in February, I knew we were playing this week and, you know, I wanted to play all the way until the U.S. Open on tour, and then it made sense to just finish, you know, with one more Davis Cup tie in September. How important is it that it's kind of a, a national thing as opposed to playing for yourself? Yeah, I mean, I've always felt comfortable, uh, you know, playing in the Olympics and playing for Canada, and that's an athlete's dream to represent your country. I've been able to do it several times. So I've been very fortunate with that, and it's exciting to be able to play in Toronto. We haven't played uh, a lot of important ties in Toronto over the years, and the first time I was uh, named to the team was in 1990 in September, and it was the same actual situation where we needed to win to get into the world group, and it was against the same team, which is Holland. So it was uh, 28 years ago. It's kind of funny. I've been fortunate to have uh, three long-term partnerships and have uh, a lot of success with Mark Knowles and Nenad Zimnich and Max Mirny, and we had some great runs and probably should have played a little bit longer with the last two partners, but that actually wasn't my choice, the, the second one. But uh, yeah, so it's it's a relationship for sure. It's uh, kind of like a, a marriage at times, and uh, you have to deal with a lot of things on a daily basis. I think doubles is a much more interesting game. Why don't we see it as much? Why doesn't it get as much respect? 
Well, generally because the top singles guys don't play enough, and I think that's kind of changing a little bit with the scoring changes they've implemented over the years. They've shortened the scoring, and more top singles guys are playing because they don't have to spend that too much extra time on the court, you know, in between singles matches. But generally, we're asking the same question because it's very popular in the non-professional world of tennis. Do you have any particular thought at the end of your career? People often ask what I'm going to do and how I'm going to feel about retiring. I haven't officially done that yet. So it's, I think it's something to ask me in February during a true Canadian winter when uh, I haven't been, I haven't experienced one, you know, a long time. So uh, that'll be an interesting uh, change. But I think, uh, you know, I definitely want to stay in tennis. The game's popularity is an all time high. And I think uh, there's a lot of opportunities in, in Canada to do good things. And so that's the, the route I'll take. Well, congratulations on a wonderful career, and we're so glad that you're staying in Toronto. Thank you. That was Canadian tennis star Daniel Nestor, who played his final professional tennis game this weekend at the Davis Cup. I'm Libby Snymer, and this is the Zoomer Week in Review. Coming up, an iconic musician who started as a homeless street kid marks his 77th birthday. You're listening to the Zoomer Week in Review, brought to you by CARP, a new vision of aging. Support CARP with your membership today. Visit carp.ca. Welcome back to the Zoomer Week in Review, all things Zoomer worldwide. I'm Libby Zneimer. It's time for your international arts datebook. Tips for those of you who are jetting around the world. Here's Jane Brown. Washington's National Portrait Gallery turns 50 this year and is celebrating with 1968, an American odyssey. A time capsule of the newsmakers of the day, including Martin Luther King, Richard Nixon, and Janis Joplin. The show also contains original artwork from the covers of Time magazine. The Museum of Civilizations is hosting new works by Chinese dissident artist Ai Weiwei, a short distance from where his poet father discovered the West in 1929 when he arrived in Marseille, France. The galleries at the Victoria and Albert in London are home to the world's most remarkable collections from the Renaissance. There are free guided tours daily. And the new Amos Rex Art Museum has opened in Helsinki, Finland. It took five years to build at a cost of $50 million. I'm Jane Brown, and that's the International Arts Datebook. This week, Canadian rock, blues, jazz, and R&B singer David Clayton Thomas celebrated his 77th birthday. He started his journey as a street kid and developed into an icon who has sold over 40 million records. Like so many Toronto-based musicians from the Zoomer generation, Clayton Thomas began his career gigging in Yorkville clubs and on the Young Street Strip. His talent was noticed by another local musician, Ronnie Hawkins, who took Clayton Thomas under his wing. He introduced him to the right people, and it wasn't long before David was fronting his own bands and performing alongside people like John Lee Hooker. It was Hooker who took him to New York City, where he performed in front of Judy Collins. Collins was so impressed by his sound that she called her friend drummer Bobby Colombi. His band, Blood, Sweat & Tears, is just broken up shortly after releasing their debut album, Columbia was taken by David Clayton Thomas's voice. 
He got his band back together, and the rest, as they say, is history. Blood, Sweat, and Tears went on to record hit singles and studio albums, and since then, David Clayton Thomas has had a very successful career as a solo blues and jazz singer. Right now, we'll hear the iconic song from Blood, Sweat, and Tears, eponymous debut with David Clayton Thomas. Here is Spinning Wheel. What goes up must come down. That was Blood, Sweat, and Tears with Spin and Wheel. David Clayton Thomas celebrated his 77th birthday this week. And that brings us to the end of this week's edition of the Zoomer Week in Review. I'm Libby Snymer. Be sure to come back next week to stay up to date with all things Zoomer worldwide. You've been listening to the Zoomer Week in Review. Produced by MZ Media Limited. Executive producer, Moses Neimer. Produced by Christine Ross, Michelle Saunders, Paul Thomas, and Andre Lowy. This has been an exclusive podcast of the Zoomer Week in Review. Heard every Sunday at noon on Zoomer Radio. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network. Home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air and The Garden Show.